Thank you. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Can you imagine if we believed that when we prayed, that we are coming to a king? And uh, it's, it's an amazing thought. If you were coming to me, you'd know that you couldn't really ask for too much money because I don't have too much. But if you were going to a multimillionaire, and you knew that he was not just a multimillionaire, but you also knew that he was a generous multimillionaire, you wouldn't have too difficult of a time asking because you knew he had the means and he was willing. Well, we have a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. And it's not about money, but he is a God of impossibilities. And you can never ask too much. And sometimes we pray like God is not interested in hearing. And sometimes we pray like God's not able to do much. And we've got the wrong idea. And may the Lord teach us some of these things about how to pray. Let's take God's word together and turn to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians, if you would please. And a month or so ago, we, uh, we looked at a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to return to that passage. And uh, we talked about how the this book, I believe, was... Well, all of, all of God's word is inspired of God and placed carefully in the scriptures for a particular reason. And uh, this book, though, I think God put the book of 1 Corinthians in our Bible because he knew that throughout the ages, and especially in this age, the church would look so much like this one, that there would be lessons and truths and things to help us from this letter all of god's word all scripture is profitable the scriptures say it's all for us and there's something in every bit of it for us when we read these letters to the churches we find something immensely practical and applicable to us today if you remember i talked about how the apostle paul writes this letter to deal with a lot of problems and boy did the church at corinth have a lot of problems and uh, we look at it and think the church today has a lot of problems. And the first problem that the Apostle Paul dealt with was the problem of division. You remember, is Christ divided? We looked at that about a month or so ago. And very shortly off the back of dealing with that problem, Paul enters into the next problem. He begins to deal with the next problem. Look at the text with me, please. We'll read together in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I have Apollos, and I have Cephas, and I have Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus besides I know not whether I baptized any other. 
For Christ, Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And let's read the next five verses of the next chapter. And I, brethren... When I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words, of men's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray together again. Father in heaven, we ask of thee tonight as this book is open before us, send thy Spirit to accompany the preaching and receiving of the Word. May we receive the Word with gladness into good ground, good hearts, that the word may prosper and bring forth fruit that would remain. Send thy Holy Spirit to give discernment, to give enlightening, to give power as we hear the word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Next problem. The second issue that the Apostle Paul has to deal with in this early church is that the Corinthian church was being drawn away from the simplicity 
of the gospel. The simplicity of the gospel. Look at the second letter to the Corinthian church, if you would. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes and says in verse 2, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. I want you to hold your place there between 2 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to deal tonight with this problem. There is always in every church a danger of losing sight of the gospel. Every church in every age. And Paul explains what that looks like in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now it's interesting to me that in nearly every gospel letter, every letter to the church, the gospel is emphasized. Beginning with Romans, that's the first in line. Corinthians, Galatians, Paul says, I marvel at how soon you are removed to another gospel. And then we read in Ephesians, the warning to put on the armor of God. Philippians, Paul talks about how, look, don't be distracted by who's preaching. As long as they're preaching the right thing, the gospel message. Colossians, talking about being hidden in Christ. And Thessalonians, we'll read it in just a moment about evil workers and such in every letter there's an emphasis on the gospel and the simplicity of the gospel now what does it look like to lose sight of the gospel well i believe we're given a little bit of an idea in our first chapter of 1 corinthians we read it a moment ago but look with me just briefly at 2 corinthians 11 again and just a little glimpse of what it looks like to lose sight of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse number 3, Paul says, I fear lest by any means. By the way, this is the heart of a shepherd. Worried, I'm jealous over you. I'm jealous that you're not, uh, that you're not leaving Christ, your first love. You remember Jesus spoke about this in the letters of the Laodicean church. I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy because I've espoused you to one husband. That's Christ Jesus. I fear that you might be like Eve who, the Bible says, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted. Look what it says. From the simplicity that's in Christ. Three ways. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted. Three ways 
three temptations that Satan uses. Now some say, I would, we would never let anyone come in here and preach another Jesus. And we would never receive another spirit. And we would never, ever accept another gospel. But it happens more frequently than you and I could ever imagine. How is it that churches today are losing sight of the gospel? How is it that we are so soon removed? As we read in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Can you imagine having the apostle Paul as your pastor? I'd never lose sight of the gospel if Paul was my pastor. Well, he's writing to two churches, the Corinthian church and the Galatian church that were planted and instructed and taught by him. And they're already, already losing sight of the gospel, already jumping ship from the true gospel to another gospel. And don't you think if they did it in the first century of Christianity, don't you think here we are 2,000 years later? Do you think that we are exempt from such a danger? We would be very foolish. And we're going to look. That's one of the number one ways that people lose sight of the gospel. How's it happen? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, your minds should be corrupted. Today we went, we're at the chapel. A few of us were meeting at the chapel to pray and do some planning and meet with some folks. And we just noticed that the front, the windows at the front of the chapel are beginning to rot the window sills at the bottom. And at one time, those window sills would have been as solid as the wood behind me or the wood over here. And you could poke it as much as you want to and not a soft spot in it, solid. But now, if you walk up to the windows in front of the chapel, in some places, you can put your finger almost all the way through. Because the wood is corrupted over time. Over time and over weather, that wood has gone from a solid state to a corrupted state. From a stable condition to instability. Once solid and strong, now rotten. And not just that, but you know what happened? If you look at the windows, the rotting windowsill has affected the glass. And because the glass is now affected, it affects the heating inside. And if we're not careful, if this foundation of the gospel, if we allow our minds to be corrupted from this, from the simplicity that's in Christ, if we allow our minds, which were once solid on this foundational principle of the gospel, if we allow our minds to be corrupted from that, everything else will be affected. Everything. And that's what's happening all over the world. Minds corrupted. Now I want you to see how clever Satan is. Paul says, I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled, as Satan deceived Eve through his subtlety. Well, I'll never be deceived. The gospel, we are, we are taken away from the simplicity in Christ, from the gospel, by deception. That's how it happens. Satan deceives us. 
And you say, I'll never be deceived. Thank you very much, Simon Peter. Take a seat. I'll never, I'll never forsake you. Though all the world forsake you, I'll never forsake you. I'll die for you. That's what Peter said. Be careful. Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Minds corrupted through the subtlety of Satan. Now the Bible calls it his subtlety. He has a craftiness. Satan has a skill to deceive like no one else has ever had. I want you to think about the most deceptive person you've ever met. I want you to think about the most crafty human being you've ever met. That person is just a fraction, has a fraction of the craftiness of, of, of Satan. In fact, he got it from Satan or she got it from Satan. As crafty, as deceiving as that person is, that is minuscule compared to the power of subtlety and deception that Satan has. And the one thing that Satan is aiming for with his skill, with his craftiness, is that he might move us from the simplicity that's in Christ. Now, how do you corrupt simplicity? You complicate it. That's how. You complicate it. The Bible says that Satan is the author of confusion. Complicate it. Make it a little bit more confusing. Make it a little bit more complicated, a little bit more difficult so that you've got to have a, a, a degree from Bible college to understand it. Make it so complicated that you cannot understand it unless somebody very clever in a suit and a tie or a collar who's been educated and has a special line can explain it to you. That's how Satan does it. And by the way, he's got a team working to corrupt our minds from the simplicity that's in Christ. He's got a team. Look what he says in verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 11. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed. It's interesting. He has false apostles, deceitful workers, and there are ministers of Satan. He's got a team. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. There's a hierarchy of deceit working in the world today with one primary goal, and that is to, to, to deceive us and to, to corrupt our minds from the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. How does he do it? Verse 17, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. Here's the first way that Satan tries to deceive us and corrupt our minds from the simplicity of the gospel with the wisdom of man, the wisdom of words. And over and over in this first chapter, uh, Paul deals with this. Look, he says, we didn't come to preach the gospel with the wisdom of words or the wisdom of speech, lest the Christ, the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Meaning the thing that's powerful is not the preacher or the sermon or his fancy words. The thing that's powerful is the cross of Jesus Christ. 
the work of Christ, that Christ died. The perfect, sinless Son of God died for wretched people like us. That's what's powerful. Not our intelligence and not the way we've got it all figured out and we're so clever and so... No, 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 no. It's not about the words and it's not about the speech and it's not about the preacher. It's about the cross of Jesus Christ. And we know that Satan tries to corrupt the gospel through preaching, through complicated preaching. Now, we live in a generation today that has, it's, not, it's nothing new, but it is, for some reason, it's been resurrected. The problem has been resurrected. That if people can sound clever, if they can work hard at sounding intelligent and theological with big phrases and big words, then that'll impress people. And that means that they're really spiritual or really close to God. That's nonsense. The preaching of the cross to the, is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Now there's a problem if we keep trying to sound wise and clever and intelligent with the way we articulate the gospel. Now this is always going to be a danger, especially to our university students and the outreach into the university because there's always going to be this danger to appeal to the intellectual crowd. But that is, let me tell you, a corruption of the mind that Satan is working at with the gospel. Because the gospel is simple. It is simple. And there's always this temptation to try to be relevant. Always this temptation to try to appeal to the intellect. And that's a dangerous road to go down. And that's the first way that Satan tries to corrupt us and draw us away from the from the cross. For it is written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Talking about the, the wisdom of the world. In fact, it says in verse number 20, look at it. Where is the wise? And where is the scribe? And where is the disputer of this world? That's the big debater. That's why there's always a danger in these kind of public debates and, and uh, this kind of this form of public apologetics, as people call it, where you get into an argument, a, 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 an intellectual wrestling match together, that's, that's dangerous. Because that's not the power of the gospel. If, if, if someone could be saved because we reason so clearly and intellectually that it finally made sense and somebody said, okay, I give in. If it could be reduced to that, then what we've done is we've made man and man's ability to reason, and man's ability to debate, we've made that the answer to salvation. It's never been about that. In fact, we're given three things in our text, three things that are three tools that Satan uses to confuse the gospel, and they all have to do with the perspective of the world. Now, you've heard me say this before, but I'll remind you again tonight that the gospel in Christianity is a constant living opposition to the mindset of the world. And if we try to incorporate the things of God, the things of Christianity, into the mindset of the world, you're going to fail every time. If you try to merge the two, and that's what's happening with a modern church. 
The modern church is trying to merge the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. And it cannot be done because the Bible says in verse 21, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom or by its wisdom knew not God. Meaning no one ever can come to God by figuring it all out in their mind. No one. Now that doesn't mean you, you turn your brain off. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that to the world, to the worldly wise person, the gospel is foolish. And the second we try to make it less foolish in order to attract them or to appeal to them is the second we weaken the gospel. You can't weaken it, but the second we weaken ourselves. Does that make sense? It cannot the gospel, a, a, a man of the world with worldly wisdom, no one, can't, no one can come to God that way. After, that after, in the wisdom of God, it was, it was the wisdom of God that made it so that the world, by its wisdom, could not know God. Because if that were the case, if we could get to God by our wisdom, if we can know God by earthly wisdom, you know what that means? We don't need God. And we don't need Christ. And that's exactly what he says in verse number 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's why it can't be down to the wisdom of man. So that's why you've got to be careful, especially now there, there's a, we have a wide variety in our church and I love that, but there are some in our church, there are some who are particularly drawn to the kind of intellectual, apologetic, toe-to-toe debate. And I'm not saying there, there is a place for that, but you've got to be careful that you're not appealing to the wisdom of man. You've got to be careful that when you do stand toe-to-toe and when you do stand and debate like Paul did on Mars Hill, that you're doing it in the power and the simplicity of the gospel. Not trying to sound clever. Not trying to be intelligent. Because the wisdom of this world, the world by its wisdom, could not know God. But it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that would believe. Now keep, keep reading. Here's our next challenge. For the Jews require a sign. Now here's another way that Satan tries to corrupt our minds from the simplicity of the gospel. The first thing is by wisdom, intellectualism. The second thing is by signs. The Jews require a sign. Now let me tell you why this is so dangerous. Give me a sign. And I believe. If I only had a sign, hold on, let me tell you why that's a lie. And this is the way a lot of modern churches are going. If we can just get signs and wonders. Now look, if God wants to give us signs and wonders, we'll gladly have them. But signs and wonders can never be the goal. Because there is a whole world that watched Jesus perform miracle after miracle, and yet they still didn't believe. So it is a lie to imagine that if we had signs, we would believe. And the Jews were seeking after a sign. Look at Matthew chapter 12, if you would please. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 38. Then certain of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Master, we would see a sign from thee. Look, scribes and Pharisees, we just want a sign. And he answered and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Did you catch that? Do you know who looks for a sign? an evil and adulterous generation. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. Now Jesus performed miracles. 
Jesus raised the dead. Jesus healed the sick. And he's just as capable and able to do it today. But it's not signs. In fact, we have to be especially careful today with signs. Let me give you a couple of reasons why. Matthew 24. Jesus Christ speaking about the last days, speaking about the end of the world. And Christ tells us in Matthew, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 24, in verse number 24, for there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now you listening. In the last days, Jesus told us, he warned us that there are going to be false prophets and false apostles that are going to come doing miracles. And if you are looking for signs and wonders, then here's what's going to happen. Your eyes, eyes are going to be taken off of the simplicity of the cross of Jesus Christ. The power, by the way, it's not just simple, but it's powerful. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the death of of the Son of God on the cross for your sins is powerful, more powerful than watching somebody dead get up from the grave. Much more powerful. The gospel message is more powerful than if I could reach down and heal somebody's leg or heal somebody's blindness. The, the preaching of the cross is much more powerful than that. Because although uh, God may allow a man to heal, allow someone to heal somebody physically, it's the healing of the soul that is the greatest miracle of all. That's the most marvelous act of God's power over anything. And if Satan can get us looking for signs, rather than preaching the gospel, the cross, look at 2 Thessalonians. Again, the apostle Paul warns us in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verse number nine, a very serious warning, even him, look at verse number eight, and then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Now think for a moment. In the last days, Paul is writing to the church at Thessalonica about the last days. And he's talking about in these last days, there's going to be signs and wonders and people are going to be deceived by the signs and wonders. So that's why we've got to train our minds not to look for signs, but to look for truth. Because it's those who receive not the love of the truth that will be deceived by a strong delusion by signs and wonders. So be careful. Satan's clever. In fact, in Revelation 13, let me give you one more verse. Revelation 13, in regards to this particular deception. In Revelation 13, verse number 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. 
and he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of all those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, and the image of the beast should both speak and cause it as many as would not worship the image that the beast of the beast they should be killed. Now that's that's you're talking last days deception. You're talking last days miracles and wonders. And so Paul warns us that here's some of the slippery road from getting off of the power of the gospel is first wisdom of men trying to sound intelligent. Second, chasing after signs. Be careful. Look, praise God. If, he, if, if the Lord gives, gives us somebody who's got a big brain, praise God. If God gives us somebody to church who's clever and intelligent and able to articulate some of the great deep things of God's word, praise the Lord. But let us never be fooled into thinking that it is intellectualism that equals power. It's not. Because we read in our text that God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. I heard a preacher say recently that every time God's about to do something big, he chooses the runt of the litter to do it. He picks from the weakest, the most despised. And so one danger, wisdom of men. Another danger, signs. And that goes right along with the, with the thing we find here in verse 27. God hath chosen the foolish things. Uh, pardon me, verse number 26. You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty. So there's your second one. Wisdom, might, signs and wonders, powerful things, expressions of, of outward. This is, this is what it means by not many mighty. Somebody who's able to do amazing, big things. Wow. We live in a wow society. And everybody wants to be wowed. And everybody wants to be entertained. That's why you go from, you go to bigger and better and badder and faster. And, and, and this is the mindset of the world today. And if we're not careful, that mindset transfers over into the Christ, Christian faith. And people are bored with old fashioned Christianity. People get bored with what they call little house on the prairie Christianity. Old-fashioned, old paths, Christian people get bored with that. Want some new thing, something dynamic, and let's get a a big screen, and let's get a big this, and a bad this, and an amazing, and bigger, and better, and more powerful. Careful. There's nothing more powerful than the gospel. He says in chapter 2, when I came to you, I came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's what we need demonstration of the spirit and of power because where there's a demonstration of the spirit there's a demonstration of power be careful that our minds are not drawn away from the simplicity in christ the simplicity of this powerful message do you know how you were saved you were not saved by signs and wonders if that's how you're claiming you were saved 
you're not saved. Sorry. Well, I got saved when there was a big kaboom and explosion. And I felt a fuzzy feeling. Bang, now I'm a Christian. Wrong. You're not a Christian. That'll make you a Christian. Nobody ever got saved with a fuzzy feeling and a big boom. You got saved because you heard the preaching of the gospel. You knew you were a sinner headed to hell. And it was revealed to you that Jesus died for your sins. The grace of God was shed abroad in your heart. And you knew that if it weren't for that man dying on the cross, inviting you to come to him, then you would be eternally damned. Now, you might have had a fuzzy feeling afterwards. Praise God if you got one. But it wasn't the fuzzy feeling that saved you. It wasn't the warmth that saved you. It was the power of the gospel that saved you. What Jesus Christ did on the cross when he took your sins and washed them away, removed them as far as the east is from the west, and when God opened your understanding and showed you, you need him and he loves you. What a marvelous revelation. What a marvelous revelation. And there's one other thing, one other thing that can tempt us away, draw us away from the gospel. And Paul points it out. It's not the wisdom of men. It's the wisdom of man that can draw you away. It's the might or the strength of signs and wonders. But here's another thing. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and the base things of the world the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Now, in verse number six, Paul calls it noble things. Now, the world has an idea of the way things ought to look. And the word that's chosen is noble. Like the sort of prince in shining armor. The knight in shining armor on a white horse. That's a, this is the kind of perspective, you know, that kind of a nobility and, and chivalry and, and a lot of these things that the world sort of pushes and says, and you got to be careful of what the world wants to dress up, what is good to look like, because it, that's precisely the way that Satan's going to bring in his agenda through the opinion of what the world says is noble rather than what God, and what God chooses. Look what it says. He uses, he uses a description for this last thing that he doesn't do in the previous things. In verse 27, it says, God chose the foolish things to confuse the wise. God chose the weak things to confound the mighty. But in verse number 28 and 29, he goes to a little bit further explanation and says, he's chosen base things, despised things, and the things that are nothing. So this, this is what the last, the last way that Satan tries to draw us off of the simplicity of the gospel is by trying to say, this is what it ought to be. What's noble in the eyes of the world. And here's what we're falling into today. The world says it's very noble for you to be accepting. It's very noble of you to be all inclusive. And it's very noble of you to have this uh, open mindedness. And, and, and this is how the world is, is drawing in churches and so called Christians into this mindset of what looks noble. It's dangerous. Because in the world's eyes, what is true gospel is base, despised, and nothing. 
And deep down we know that. And because we're so proud, it bothers us. It bothers us to be base. We don't want to be base. We want to be respected. We don't want to be something that people trample under their feet. We don't want to be despised. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. We want our university mates to like us and our professors to think we're clever. And we want our fellow employees to think that we're, we're just as good as they are. And we, we don't want anybody to walk over top of us. We don't want to be base. We want to be loved and accepted. And, and we don't want to be nothing. We want to be somebody. That's the opposite. The polar opposite of the gospel. Because the gospel says this. You were absolutely nothing when Jesus died for you. You were nobody. You had nothing. You were despised and despicable and you had nothing to offer. And yet God loved you. Not because of you, but because of who he is. So when you start trying to act like you're somebody that you're not, Look, you are the glory in the cross. You are the glory in the fact that God loved you and he died for you and you were a nobody. Glory in that, in Christ and the goodness of God, not that you were somebody. If you start thinking that it's your, something about you that made you worthy to be saved, the people are going to look at you and say, well, I can't be saved because I'm not special like that. And the reason for this is so that no flesh should ever be able to glory in his presence. And you know what we do? We, we make this mistake all the time. We say, you know what? If that person got saved, he'd really be a good Christian. Why? Because there's some big athlete? Or because there's some uh, top of the university? Or there's some Fortune 500 wealthy person? Look, I hope God saves some wealthy people and sends them our way. But it's not the wealthy people or the intelligent people or the mighty people that are going to make good Christians. It's the people who are nobody and they know they're nobody and they just rejoice that God would ever save them. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him, because of him, you are in Christ. Not because of your wisdom, not because of your power, not because of your nobility, but because of Almighty God, because of His grace, you are in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We find in Jesus Christ all those things that the world thought they had. True wisdom is found in Christ. True power is found in the Holy Spirit. True nobility is found in Christ when we become a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Think about that. All the things that the world is trying to masquerade as if it has are all found really and truly in Christ. And Satan has corrupted all of that into a worldly edition of it, which is nonsense. According as it is written, let him that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We could go on, but we'll bring things to a close. Don't be, don't be taken away from the simplicity of the gospel. Don't let wisdom, the wisdom of the world. Now there is a wisdom, a godly spiritual wisdom, which we'll come to look at. There's a spiritual wisdom that cannot be learned from a book. It can't. I like to read. I've read a couple of 
excellent books. I'm reading a couple of excellent books even now. I love to read, but there are some things that you cannot learn from a book. No matter how many people write about it, no matter how much you read it, you could read you could read a hundred books by a hundred different men about the Holy Spirit of God, about the power of God's Spirit, and still never get it. Because it only comes from Him. We're going to come to talk about that. We're going to come to look at that next. There is a wisdom, spiritual wisdom, a depth of spiritual wisdom that is amazing, but it's not the wisdom of this world. It's not exercising your mental faculties like the world wants to suggest. It's totally different. It's a different realm, a different world, different way of thinking. It's not might and power like the world imagines. Well, if we could just feed 5,000, that sounds good. Heal the lame, that sounds good. That's what Jesus did. That's powerful. That's mighty and powerful. Those things that Christ did proving that he was a son of almighty God. Look, if, if God could do that again today, I don't doubt that at all. And God does do miracles still today, but we don't look for signs. You got to be careful. And that no nobility that the world has to suggest, may we be careful. There's something that's found only in his presence, only in the simplicity of the cross. Over and over you'll notice this speaking about the preaching of the cross, the foolishness of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. We can't get away from that. I'm encouraged by some of our people who go out every day and preach the simple gospel message. That's it. The simple gospel message every day, talking to people every day about their need of a Savior. That's where the power is. That's where the power is. And if God wishes to bless with further demonstrations of his power, so be it. But the most powerful thing on the planet is the gospel. And it's simple. Simple. May we never stray from it. There will always be a temptation. To try to sound clever, sound intelligent, want to make it into the, into the theology history books. It's always going to be a temptation. May the Lord keep us simple. Simplicity of Christ the gospel message. Let's pray together and then we'll sing our final hymn. Father, we thank Thee. We do praise Thee that this message is so powerful that the preaching of the cross, the preaching of the place where our sins were dealt with in the person of Jesus Christ, the, the preaching of the event where our sins were washed away, that is so powerful that it needs no extras. We praise thee, Lord, and pray that we may never stray from it. We may never forget it. We may be built strongly, solidly upon it. And as Satan in these last days tries to draw us away and, and to corrupt our minds through his subtlety, may we be mindful of his devices. May we be steadfast and unmovable. May this message never cease to come out of our lips. May we, like Paul, say, I determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Father, if it would please thee to make us wiser and wiser, we want it. If it would please thee to give us more and more power than we want it. And if it would please thee, Father, to make us more, it is, we know thy will, that we would become more like Christ. And that truly is the greatest nobility we could ever know. Then make us, we pray, like him. For thy honor and thy glory. Keep us, we pray, near to the cross of Jesus Christ. Seal these thoughts in our minds, for we ask it in Jesus Christ's name.
Amen.